I invite you to take your Bibles this morning, open them with me to the 11th chapter of the book of Romans. For the last several weeks now, we have been working carefully through what I've been calling the most debated section in the Bible, Romans 9 to 11. This section also happens to be the most important section on Israel in the New Testament. In Romans 9, Paul talks mostly about Israel in the past. Romans 10, mostly about Israel in the present. Romans 11, where we're going today, Paul starts to talk about Israel in the future. But no matter where you are in the three chapters, Israel is never far from Paul's mind. And so as we enter Romans 11, I think it's worth asking again, why does Paul talk so much about this in these chapters? Now, there are a lot of answers, a lot of reasons you could give. But I just want to bring two back to mind. And one is that this was on everyone's mind in the early church. Even though we may not think that much about Israel in our own day, this would have been on the early church's mind all the time. Why is that? Well, one easy way to think about this is just to imagine going to church every week, singing the Jewish psalms, reading the Jewish scriptures, worshiping the Jewish Messiah, only then to look around and see that virtually every person in the room with you is not a Jew, but is a Gentile. Where are the people of Israel? What happened to them? Why don't they see what we see in their Bible? And don't think this would have been only important Uh, to Gentile Christians. Because what if you were one of the few Jewish Christians in Paul's day? I imagine that could have been a very lonely experience, confusing experience. You can imagine a Jewish Christian wondering, how is it that I have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah promised in my scriptures? while all of my Jewish friends and family completely disagree. They think he was a fraud. How's that? How do I explain that? And why is it that the only people around me in this church are a bunch of like hot dog eating Gentiles? <laughs> Paul talks about Israel a lot because this was on everyone's mind in the early church, especially in the mostly Gentile Roman churches. But the second reason Paul talks a lot about this is actually the most important one, in my view, and that, and that is that Paul knew that what was happening with Israel and the church raised serious questions about the faithfulness of God. That was probably the main reason he wrote this section. I mean, if, if only a few Jewish people are getting God's blessings while most of them are under a curse, is that really okay? Does that really fit with the Old Testament scriptures that they would read every week? I mean, doesn't this mean that God's promises have failed. And of course, that is hardly a concern only for Jewish people. This is of incredible importance to all of us as well. After all, if God has not kept his promises to other people, how can we trust him to keep his promises to us? And it's really this question about the faithfulness of God to what he promised that leads to the main claim of all of Romans 9 through 11. We haven't looked at it in a while, but you could look back at Romans 9 Verse 6, the whole three chapters, this is the main thing he says. Romans 9, verse 6, when Paul claims, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
Throughout Romans 9, Paul sets to, out to prove that by looking back at Israel in the past and, and by looking very closely at what God actually promised. And what does, what does Paul point out? And one of the things he says is, look, if you look carefully at the promises, God never guaranteed all of his blessings to every physical descendant of Abraham. And the second thing Paul points out is that God is free to do what he wants to do, to accomplish his purposes. I mean, God is free, for example, to narrow his saving plans, if he wants to, and to work with a smaller group than you might like. Like God did that with Isaac instead of Ishmael, or with Jacob instead of Esau, or with Israel instead of Egypt. And God's free to do that, if he wants to do that. But as Paul points out, God is also free to expand his saving plans beyond what anyone expected. And that's exactly what he's been doing in the church ever since the church began. Because God has thrown the door to his mercy wide open to a bunch of no-name Gentiles. And God is free to do that too, if he wants to do that, because God is God. And that's a lot of what Romans 9 is about. But then in Romans 10, where we've been lately, Paul wants to make it very clear why exactly Israel is in the sad state that they're in today. Why have the vast majority of Jewish people rejected Jesus? And can you remember the kind of things that Paul points to? Like he points to some of them uh, are maybe ignorant of some of what God has done for them. But he points especially to things like their misplaced zeal and passion, their pride in their own ethnicity or their pride in their own ability. But above everything, the fa their failure is because they failed to see that Christ is the goal of all of the scriptures. I mean, they have studied, Jewish people, even to today, study God's law. They order their life. They order their entire society around this document, particularly the Torah. They participated, especially up through Paul's day, in the ceremonies and the sacrifices. They had been doing that for centuries. But in the end, they failed to grasp what the law was pointing them to, how all along the law was intended to point them to Jesus. And as so Paul summarizes very concisely, he says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is to say they stumbled over Jesus. And then in the text we looked at last week, just a week ago, at the end of Romans 10, you can look there, Romans 10, verses 18 to 21, <clears throat> Paul wanted to make sure that no one would make any excuses for Israel. He cared a lot about Israel, but he made no excuses for them. Why did all this happen to Israel? Paul says things like it's not because they haven't had opportunities. It's not because they haven't heard about Jesus. It's not because the gospel's too hard for them to understand. It's not because God never warned them what he would do if they kept rebelling. And last of all, it's not because, it's what's, it's not because this is what God wanted to happen. And that's the last verse of Romans 10. Remember that, that picture? We, we talked a lot about it last week. Romans 10, verse 21, we read this. But of Israel, God says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and stubborn people. Now, this is what leads us into the question at the beginning of chapter 11 today. Romans 11, verse 1, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And by his people, in this, in this text, he's going to be talking about Israel. Has God rejected his people? And that question makes a lot of sense. I mean, after all that God has done for Israel, and after all that they have done to God, 
And then especially after all they've done to his own son whom he sent for them. Surely God is finished with these people. That's what we would expect. That is certainly what they deserve. And that's why Paul asked the question. I asked then, has God rejected his people? But what is his answer? Verse 1 again, he says, by no means. Even though this is what we would expect, and even though this is in all likelihood what we would do if we were God. This is not what God has done. God has not rejected Israel completely. That's, that's the point. Now, how, now, what does Paul point to as proof? It's interesting what he points to. You see what he does? Look at verse 1 again. How does he prove that God has not rejected Israel completely? He just says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. I mean, who does he point to for proof? He just says, look at me. Look at me. I myself am an Israelite. I'm from Abraham's family. I am a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And look at what God has done in my own life. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He said, I'm exhibit A of the mercy and the faithfulness of God. But that's not the only evidence he wants to bring. As he does throughout all of Romans 9 through 11, he always wants to take you back to the Old Testament, to Israel's own scriptures. And so look at what he points to. This is in verse 2. He says, Or do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? How Elijah appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. Now, let's just pause there, because I, I want to make sure we know what story Paul's talking about. He says, or do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? So how about you? Do you know? Do you know what this is talking about? Okay. You can read about Elijah in the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament, but here's the basic gist of what's going on in his day. In Elijah's day, put simply, things were the worst they ever were in Israel. That is made very clear in 1 Kings right before Elijah shows up. Like the author wants you to know, this is the worst it's ever been, right before Elijah shows up, okay? Uh, things were, in First Kings, if you go back and you read it sometime, things were always a mess in Israel. And by Israel in, in that day, let's talk about the northern uh, 10 tribes. Things were always a mess uh, in First in Kings. And that goes back to their very first king that they had, a guy named Jeroboam. This guy was a bad, bad guy. One of his first things he did as king was he set up two golden calves, one in the north and one in the south, to make it really easy to worship. And then he instituted all kinds of false worship. He did a whole bunch of other bad stuff. He was just a bad guy. Okay? And as you read through 1 Kings, the author of 1 Kings wants to tell you that every single king that Israel ever had followed in his steps. They were all bad guys without exception. Okay? But then, right in the middle of 1 Kings, there is this new king who comes along, a man named Ahab. And I want you to listen to what the Bible says about Ahab. Okay? This is in 1 Kings 16 at the end, if you want to look at it. 1 Kings 16, verse 30. Uh, I'm going to just go ahead and read it. This is how he's, he's introduced. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord 
than any of those before him. He not only considered it a small thing to commit the sins of Jeroboam, he also married Jezebel, who was like this horrible lady from another kingdom, and he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in the capital city of Samaria. And then it summarized, Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all of the kings of Israel before him. Things are always bad in Israel, in 1 Kings, but this is the baddest of the bad. This is the worst time in Israel's history. But then, out of nowhere, Elijah shows up. No warning, he is just like on the scene right after those verses. God raises up a prophet in Israel to go head-to-head with King Ahab, his wicked wife, Jezebel, and the false god that they all love, Baal. And this all culminates in a showdown between Elijah, who is standing all by himself against the 450 prophets of Baal. This happens in 1 Kings chapter 18. And what happens, I won't tell the whole story, but the short of it is, God shows up in that story. Elijah stands up publicly, all alone, against all the prophets of Baal, and God responds with power. And the people of Israel see it, and they respond. They finally seem to turn away from the false god Baal, and Elijah puts to death all 450 prophets of Baal. This was the greatest moment of his life. But then what happens? Ahab goes back and tells Jezebel, who's kind of like the leader of this whole bad stuff going on. And, and how does she respond? She says, I'm going to kill Elijah by tomorrow. And what does Elijah do? Unexpectedly, as you read the story, he becomes afraid and he runs for his life. He eventually goes all the way to Mount Sinai, where Moses and Israel first met with God. And from there, Elijah says these words to God. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they're seeking my life. Paul asks us, do you remember that story? This was the darkest time in Israel's history. Here you have Elijah the prophet pleading to God against Israel, feeling as if he is the only faithful Israelite left. Now Romans 11, verse 4. Paul says, but what is God's reply to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even in the darkest of Israel's days, even when Elijah himself could not see it, God had kept for himself 7,000 men in Israel who were faithful to him. What's the point of pointing to that story? That's what Paul says in verse 5. When he says, so too, At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. See, whether it was in Elijah's day or in Paul's day or even in our day, God continues to save 
some Jewish people. A small portion, or what Paul calls a remnant. And then Paul adds in verse 6, almost as an aside, and, and if it is by grace, it is no longer, it is not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. This, this is just like Paul loves to throw out things like this. Just to always remind people of his foundational teaching, which is that no one deserves this. No one has earned this. And God does not owe this to anyone. Because if he did, no one would be calling it grace. Now this brings us then to the second part of our text this morning, verses 7 to 10. Where Paul puts most of the focus, interestingly, not on the remnant, but on the rest of the people. Romans 11, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Like this is like Israel as a whole has failed to find what it was looking for. And he says, the elect, the chosen, obtained it. Like the remnant, the little group. But the rest of them were hardened. That is Paul's summary of the situation. Israel as a whole has failed to obtain what it's looking for. Some have, but the rest haven't. The remnant that God rescued by his grace have found it, what they're looking for, right standing with God, but the rest were hardened in their sin. And here's the, question, the key question about this. Does that fit with the Old Testament scriptures? Because this, this is the whole problem that Paul's trying to address. Does, does the Old Testament teach that this would happen? Or does this contradict the Bible? That, that's pretty much the main question you need to be thinking about. And that's what Paul wants to answer in verse 8. Look at what he says. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. I don't know. I never use the word stupor. Almost all translations say stupor, so there's not a whole lot of other, like a spirit of numbness, dullness, I don't know. Spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. What's the point? God's judgment on most of Israel is not a sign his promises have failed. No, in fact, this is fulfillment of Scripture. Just as Isaiah said, God has, as it were, put his stubborn people to sleep given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, and it continues all the way down to Paul's day and all the way even to our own day today. But this is not the only text Paul quotes, and this is where I think the text gets pretty tough. This is an unfamiliar text, but this gets pretty raw, like what he says here. Why? It's because Paul knows that this judgment on the vast majority of his own people is not just fulfillment of prophecy, Paul knows that this judgment is also an answer to prayer. Look at verse 9 to see what I mean. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Does that sound familiar to you? We read this earlier this morning from Psalm 69. Can you remember that psalm? Okay. Do you remember how David was in deep despair? Why? It's because so many of the people that should have loved him hated him. 
So, so I, David had lots of problems outside of Israel. But in Psalm 69, the thing that hurts him the most is that the very people who should have loved him and welcomed him and honored him as God's anointed hated him. Perhaps you remember words like this. Their scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. I looked around for comforters, and I found none. They gave, or they put poison in my food, and they gave me vinegar for my thirst. And so what does David pray in response to that? What does he ask God to do to those who rebel against God's anointed? David prays what Paul quotes in this text. Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution and let their eyes be darkened so they can't see and bend their backs forever. What does Paul see in his own day as he looks around? And he looks at all the Jewish people around. What does he see? He sees that prayer being answered. He sees that judgment falling on Israel. And he knows that the judgment isn't simply for rejecting David. The judgment is ultimately for scorning and spurning the son of David. Jesus himself, who came unto his own, but whose own people did not want him or welcome him. Now that is some sobering stuff in that, in that text. This certainly was not easy for Paul to talk about this. After all, he is talking not about people way out there. He is talking about his own family, his own country, his own people, and maybe you even start to sense more of why Paul said what he did all the way back at the beginning of this section in Romans 9, at the very beginning, when he says, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying to you. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I carry around constant sorrow when I think of my people. We need to never forget, Paul is not talking about these things as though they are theoretical. He's not speaking as someone who's distant from this. He feels the pain and sorrow over the condition of his people every day. Now, this is, this is the text that I, that, we, that I wanted to work through today. I, now, I, I want to end by talking about what I think is the hardest question related to this text, and that is the question, what are we supposed to do with this text? See, sometimes texts are hard to explain, but fairly easy to apply. That is not this text. This is a good example of the kind of text that is much easier to explain than it is to apply. Like, what are we supposed to do with those 10 verses? They, they are some of the, that might be the most unfamiliar section, maybe, in Romans, certainly in Romans 9 through 11. And, and, and I think we've been going through Romans for a long time. As I wrestled with this this week, I'm like, this is the most challenging text for me to think through, like, what, what am I supposed to do or see or believe in light of these verses here? And, 
And I'm interested in actually hearing from you this week, you know, as, as, we, as you wrestle with this and you think through how God's Spirit might bring these verses to bear on your own life. But here are a few of the things I've been thinking I plan to take away from this. The first thing is I'm reminded again of the dominant idea in the chapters is that, that God's promises haven't failed. God keeps his word. And, and that is both in terms of the things that God says that are very positive for us and the things that he says that are promises to judge or what his warnings that he holds out. Like he actually carries them out. He does not speak falsely. God does what he says he will do. And you see that in this text, both the good and the bad. But second, I'm reminded, again, that God will keep saving and God will keep judging. God doesn't do just one of those things. God saves and God judges. And so I want to challenge us all, don't mess around with God. Do not presume on the kindness of God. And especially to anyone who doesn't know Christ yet, let me say this, while the door to God's mercy is still open, do not delay. Do not tarry. In fact, don't even like walk casually toward the door. You run for mercy. You run to the Son of God for refuge while it's still called today. Or to think about the, some of the language of this text, you better run to Jesus while your ears still can hear God's voice. Because there may come a day when you cannot hear his voice anymore. Third, I am reminded through this text that it is not uncommon for God's people to be in despair. This is an interesting sub-theme in this text, one that I have probably never paid close attention to in this text. But everybody in this text feels incredible despair. Like Elijah felt all alone, like he was the only one left in Israel. He was in the depths of despair. And by the way, that was about one day after the greatest moment in his life. And for many of us, it does not take long to get sad, does it? But it's not just Elijah that comes to mind. I have to think that Paul himself could relate very well to what he quotes about Elijah. I mean, after all, Paul goes around among Gentile people and he sees fruit among the Gentiles, and yet he looks around at his own people and he sees little to no fruit throughout his entire life and ministry. He carried that sorrow around constantly. And in fact, if he ever looked to his own people for comfort or support, he wouldn't find it. For the most part, what he would find is when I looked for comforters, I found none. In fact, they're the very people who brought the most persecution against him. I wonder how he felt about them, if he resonated with what Elijah felt. But it's not just Elijah and Paul. Those words from David in Psalm 69 were written from terrible despair. David felt alone, abandoned, and forsaken. And my point is that this is not uncommon for God's people to be in despair. And sometimes it happens even after great moments of joy and victory in our lives. 
And if that's where you find yourself this morning, one thing is you're in good company. That has been the case for many, many of God's people. But yet if you go back and you think through every one of those circumstances, you will see, we will see, that God was actually working. Even when Elijah or David or Paul couldn't see it, we can see it now that God was working. Even when they felt all alone, we can see that God was still there with them. That God was still working. And not just generally. Like God was actually working in them and through them in the very moments when they felt like he wasn't. It's not hard for us now to see this about them. But it was hard for them to see it about them. And this is the way it always is. That's just one of the many reasons we need to keep ourselves surrounded by the people of God who can help us to see when our eyes are failing. But then lastly, I've been thinking a lot about Psalm 69 and and what it says in this text. This is the last part of Romans, this, this section of Romans 11. In the psalm, David is in despair. Right? He has a broken heart, he says. He looks for comforters but doesn't find any. He says they gave him poison for food, <clears throat> sour wine to drink. Now we know that this psalm reflects David's own experience, but we also know, because of the way the New Testament writers use this psalm, that this psalm ultimately points to Jesus, not only his life, but especially what happened to him on the cross. And I've been thinking about that. When Jesus looked around for pity, there was none. When he looked for comforters, there were none. From the very people who should have been for him, he received scorn. They reproached him. They even gave him vinegar to drink. I'm reminded through that that Jesus knows despair. He's been there. And he knows how to sympathize with us in our disappointments and despair. But I also could not get away from the one key difference between David's experience in Psalm 69 and Jesus's on the cross. The difference is in their prayer. David looks for comfort from those who should love him, and he finds none. Instead, he finds scorn, rejection, and reproach. So what does he do? David pleads with God against them. He pleads with God to judge them. And and don't misunderstand me. David wasn't wrong to ask this. In fact, what he prays is what Paul quoted from Psalm 69. But this is also where the difference between Psalm 69 and Jesus lies. Jesus went through the same experiences as David in Psalm 69, but to an even greater degree on the cross. But instead of pleading to God against them, what did he pray? Jesus prayed to God for them. 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I don't know about you, but I like King David, but I need a better king than him. I need a king like this. And not only do I need him, I want a king like this. And that's what we find in Jesus, the greater son of David, the one who came to his own, but who was neither wanted nor welcomed, but who never lost his heart for them anyway, even on the cross. And that same king welcomes sinners still today to come to him. Come to him, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this scripture. Thank you for how it draws us ultimately to Jesus. And I pray that you would take this text, which I imagine for most of us, we've never really thought deeply about. I pray that you will stir within us a deeper trust for you. I pray that we'll be able to draw closer to Jesus as we understand his despair and even just relate to all of your people who have struggled throughout the centuries. And Lord, I pray that you will help us ultimately to find our rest in Jesus who loved us to the very end, who loved us to to the point of death. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for your mercy and your welcome. I pray that you will be near us this week. Thank you that you are living, interceding for us. Thank you that you are for us and that your love never fails. I pray that you will, through your spirit, bring great comfort to our hearts. In your name we pray this. Amen.